the judge assessed fines and costs. I think it was somewhere around $250 told her to go to the back room. In the back room, there were police officers waiting for her, and they said, do you have the money with you? She said she didn't. They directed her to a phone in the office and told her that she better start making calls. And when she wasn't able to call someone to turn up the money, she was escorted downstairs to the jail and spent five days there because of her inability to pay that amount. And her, she was told that um, she could serve it out at $20 per day or $40 per day if she worked as a trustee and washed police cars and did laundry. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. In many ways, there are two criminal legal systems in this country, one for the rich and one for the poor. I talked today with Sarah Zampreen from the Southern Poverty Law Center, where she litigates issues of economic justice. We talk about the ways in which our criminal legal system punishes people for being poor and the ways in which the system makes people poor. Here's our conversation. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So you work on issues of economic justice. This is a podcast about criminal justice. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how those two issues intersect? Too often we see that in the criminal justice system, uh, the outcomes are determined by how much money a person has. So we see a two-tiered system of justice where people with money get um, less harsh punishments, and people who don't have money are often forced to spend more time in jail pay more in fines and fees, and ultimately have their life restricted in many ways for longer than those who are able to pay up front. So we started looking into uh, lower-level courts, misdemeanor and um, municipal courts, uh, and saw just the stark inequities based on how much money a person could afford to pay and the outcomes that people were receiving. So you talked about court fines. What are some of the other ways that uh, people who are impoverished have worse outcomes or see a different justice system altogether? A lot of it is how much time people spend in jail, actually. So in many ways, um, courts are putting people in jail simply based on their poverty. One of those ways is bail. Oftentimes, a person's a decision about whether a person stays in jail pretrial is made solely based on how much money they pay. In many uh, courts, there's a set bail schedule. So based on the offense that you are charged with, that might determine how much money you have to pay. It might be adjusted by the judge, but often we're talking about thousands of dollars in bail. $50,000 bail is not uncommon. So that's like if you're charged with an assault and battery, the judge would just look down at this schedule, this sheet of paper, and it would say, oh, you owe $50,000. And if you pay those, well, you don't owe $50,000. If you pay those $50,000, you can go home and wait for your trial at home. But if you don't have those $50,000, you go to jail. That's exactly right. Okay. Or you stay in jail. Uh, and what's happened is that there is an industry set up to um, cater to people who can't afford those high bail amounts. The bail industry offers their services to people who can't afford to post the full amount with the court. So again, if your bail is $50,000 and you have $50,000, you will post it with the court. Good for you. And go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you have property worth $50,000. So uh, you know there are middle class and, and upper class people who are able to do those things. If you don't have $50,000, you might go to a bail agent who will say, you need to pay me 10% as a non-refundable fee. 
so instead of getting that money back at the end of the case, like the people who had that money or the people who posted that property, you are paying a non-refundable $5,000 charge to this bail agent. Um, and often your friends and family members are paying, especially if you end up in prison as a result of this case that has landed you uh, in the criminal justice system and don't, no longer have an income. So is $50,000, I know we've been throwing around that number, but is that the scale of what we're looking at? And I know it's different by jurisdiction, but you've worked with a number of clients what is the number that they are, are looking at? It can vary greatly. Um, misdemeanors, it might be um, it might be $1,000, maybe $5,000, $10,000. Felonies, I think 50000 is is a number that I have seen fairly often, um, including for drug offenses or other you know, nonviolent offenses. Uh, so I, I think that is, a, is an amount that is entirely realistic. And I guess it's, uh, as I'm asking that question, I realize the absolute value is not so important as much as the relative value. So, so for someone for whom, you know, a $5,000 bail is set and they'd have to muster up $500 for a bail bondsman, that for many people involved with the criminal justice system, I'm assuming that can be a deal breaker. It is, and that's why we see so many of the jails across this country full of people who are in pretrial, who have not been convicted of any crime, who are simply in because they don't have access to those resources in order to get out, or they don't have friends and family members who have access to those resources. And predominantly, that's communities of color who have don't have the wealth built up that a lot of um, white families have in this country. And that is a result of uh, redlining and a series of federal practices that go way back. So, uh, And what does it look like, so when people are held in jail pre-trial, how long are they there normally, what, and, and what are the consequences of that? It can vary. Uh, again, if we're talking about misdemeanors or traffic tickets, you know, sometimes we see people just held pre-trial on, on basically traffic tickets. Um, that can be... Uh, two weeks before you have your first court date where you might be enticed to take a plea because you really are desperate to get out and get back to making money and living with your family and trying to put your life back in order. Um, so bail often results in a lot of um, plea deals being taken and, and people uh, getting convictions that they might not be guilty of. In the, um, in the felony context, it can take months sometimes before you have any substantive hearings at all. Um, Sometimes there are initial hearings where the judge may or may not consider your bail amount and whether it should be lowered. Um, I think we would say that the, the judges should be considering that bail amount, should be adjusting it to an amount you can pay under the Constitution, but it's not really what's happening in practice. Um, and then it can be years sometimes before you ever uh, see your trial date if you're trying to hold out for that long. Um, and those are years you spend in jail? If you can't post bail, yes. And in that time... What happens to your job or your kids or just... Yeah, we often have clients who, even based on short stays in jail, um, lose their job, lose their home. Um, they can't afford to pay rent anymore, so they've lost their home. All their possessions were thrown out because they lost their home. Um, their children had to go somewhere else or were picked up by the state um, child services. So many outcomes can happen, just even based on couple days in jail. And I think that's something that judges and prosecutors don't often understand that, you know, even holding someone for a few days is pretty life altering. And you mentioned the Constitution. <laughs> How does that factor into this? Because it does seem, um, if you're setting $50,000 bail for someone that doesn't have 
50 cents to scrape together. That does sound like imprisoning people for being poor. I agree. Uh, The 14th Amendment, as you're aware, provides due process and equal protection to all people. Uh, And there are numerous cases holding that it is unconstitutional to hold someone simply because they don't have the ability to pay. There have been Supreme Court cases holding that you must uh, determine what somebody, if somebody could have afforded to pay the fine um, before you sentence them to some sort of punishment for not doing so, because otherwise you're punishing somebody for conduct that they could not control. Uh, With the bail context, the purpose of bail is to ensure that somebody comes to their court date. And when judges make decisions that a certain amount of money is what is guaranteed to bring someone to their court date, then that amount of money needs to be tailored to a person's situation. You know, $5,000 or $50,000 means something completely different for, say, the judge than it does to some of the people that he or she is seeing in in their courtroom. Um, So uh, there have been cases being litigated across the country um, by us and others asking the courts to remind these um, judges, the sheriffs, um, the cities, the counties that are prosecuting these cases that you need to provide due process to the people who are appearing in front of you. You need to set a bail amount that that is decided with consideration of their ability to pay. Otherwise, you're effectively holding them pretrial and you um, have to provide extra due process protections if you're going to decide this person just can't be released. And th- and that decision shouldn't be just based on money. It should be based on other factors, um, dangerousness or, uh, or considerations like that, actual risk that they will flee the jurisdiction and not report to their court date. And so um, you mentioned that there are cases going on across the country that you all are litigating them. What are those efforts that say that let's talk specifically about the Southern Poverty Law Center. What are the cases you're bringing? You don't have to talk about specifics. And, and who are the clients that you're representing? What What is their story? So uh, we have two cases ongoing in Alabama against courts that um, have set bail beyond what our clients could afford and refuse to adjust that amount of bail or take into account their financial situation. So these are cases against Randolph County, Alabama and Coleman County, Alabama, and both are being litigated with us um, and the ACLU and Civil Rights Corps, who have done a lot of this work across the country as well. In one situation, we found our client, Candace, eight months pregnant, uh, homeless veteran, forced to sleep on the floor in jail because she didn't have the money to post her bond for a minor theft case. She had no way of getting that money together. She had no way of getting out and getting the health care she needed, getting just the getting back to her job and her her family. And so we filed a case trying to uh, declare that practice of that county uh, unconstitutional. Wow. So that's bail. But it sounds like there are a number of other steps along the way where um, folks who are poor are treated differently or are punished for being poor. Um, you mentioned court fines earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work on court fines? Sure. Judges in Alabama and Louisiana are uh, assessing fines and court costs uh, and not adjusting those punishments because of any ability to pay. So again, 
Um, $500 means something very different to that judge than it does to the people coming before him or her in many contexts. And what are those fines for? So is that someone who's been convicted of a crime and then a bunch of fines accrue? Could you accrue a fine before you are convicted? What are the fines? All of those are possibilities. Uh, So sometimes there are cases that are dismissed, but the judges are requiring people to pay court costs uh, upon dismissal of that case. We see that often in some traffic tickets. Maybe somebody is diverted to a driving school or something that still has to pay court costs and has to pay for the classes. Um, We see it in cases where somebody pleads guilty to a traffic ticket, to a misdemeanor, to a felony. Um, There might be both a fine and court costs associated with that. Uh, The difference being court costs are generally set by the legislature, are uh, supposed to be for the costs of prosecution, but often are funding other entities or money that is going to things that are not the courts or court-related entities. Like what? Well, um, some of the examples in Alabama are um, this: uh, the American Village, which is a Revolutionary War park, um, gets a dollar from every single criminal case. So uh, the court costs are funding you know, this park. Where is the park, out of curiosity? It's in Montevallo, Alabama. I'm just, I ask, is it um, a predominantly white neighborhood? Or uh, are the folks who regularly attend this park predominantly white? I would, I would guess so. I, I think that's probably true. It's a, it's a park that I think, you know, one of those historical reenactment uh, parks where mm-hmm. they show you what life was like back in Revolutionary War era. Yeah. That just sounds, that's a straight wealth transfer right there. Um, well, not a straight wealth transfer. A straight wealth transfer would be handing that dollar to someone else. But or the police department. Or, let's see, the police officers annuity fund uh, gets money from every single case. Other, you know, general fund funds in Alabama are getting money from each criminal case, and it's basically being used as a supplement for tax revenue that is not. Um, being collected through other means like property taxes or income taxes that would be less regressive and fall less on low-income communities and communities of color. So these are fines set by the legislature, is that right? Legislature? The costs are set by the legislature for the most part. Uh, Judges have discretion to waive these costs, but in principle, uh, or in practice rather, we don't find that that happens very often. Um, Judges are generally assessing these costs feel that the people uh, who have been given these costs must pay them and then impose punishments when that doesn't happen. So, yeah, what does happen when they don't, when they are not able to pay these fines? And I wonder if you have someone in mind um, who has experienced this. We have a lot of clients that have experienced a, a range of problems when this happens. One client that comes to mind, uh, her name is Amanda. She lost her license years ago for not being able to pay um, an old uh, fines on an old case. Um, so what happens in a lot of states is when you can't, when you don't pay off your fines and costs, you might get your driver's license suspended, or if you owe back child support or any other number of things, one of the punishments imposed is suspending a driver's license. So we see a lot of clients. Interesting because driver's licenses are one of the, especially if you're in Alabama, one of those things you really need to be employed. Exactly. So um, Amanda was driving. She got a ticket. Um, she was driving to work, got a ticket for driving on her suspended license, went to court, and uh, 
the judge assessed fines and costs. I think it was somewhere around $250, told her to go to the back room. In the back room, there were police officers waiting for her, and they said, do you have the money with you? She said she didn't. They directed her to a phone in the office and told her that she better start making calls. And when she wasn't able to call someone to turn up the money, she was escorted downstairs to the jail and spent five days there because of her inability to pay that amount. And her, she was told that um, she could serve it out at $20 per day or $40 per day if she worked as a trustee and washed police cars and did laundry. So we, we represented Amanda in a case against the city of Alexander City um, and obtained a settlement for her and uh, 190 people who suffered similar violations and uh, will now receive $500 per day that they spent in jail. You know, not a total... Um, can't replace everything that they lost during those times. I mean, a lot of people lost jobs, lost custody of their kids, lost their uh, their housing um, because of these jail stays, but some amount of justice is going back to them for that time that they spent in jail. And out of curiosity, what was the legal argument in that case? Was it a 14th Amendment claim or...? Yes, we brought 14th Amendment claims um, under 1983 against the city and also Sixth Amendment claims because people weren't provided with access to an attorney, as well as false imprisonment state law uh, claims. So are there any other clients you have in mind who, it sounds like it's unique to each county? It is. Uh, the practices are similar. When you when you look across um, across the country, really, you see places where people are being punished like this for their inability to pay. They're going to jail um, because solely because of their inability to pay and because these courts don't have systems set up to provide alternative punishments in some way. Another thing that we have seen in Alabama, but in many other states as well, Mississippi, um, Missouri, uh, Colorado even, is for-profit private probation. And this is something that the courts have set up to supervise people who have um, who owe fines to the court in order to ensure that they make those payments to the court and to have a debt collector, uh, for lack of a better word, that is um, forcing people to pay and um, threatening them when they don't. You know, historically, um, probation is used as a way to avoid jail. You know, you suspend a jail sentence and you put people on probation to comply with a set of conditions that will hopefully help them keep their life on track um, or get their life back on track and stay out of trouble. How it's being used in many of the contexts I've seen private probation, how private probation is used in many contexts is uh, as a way to ensure that one condition above all is met, and that's payment of monetary sanctions. And that's both monetary sanctions that are going to the court, so those fines and fees, uh, costs we were talking about, but also an extra monthly fee for supervision purposes that goes directly to the private entity. So they're paying both their fines and fees from the court, presuming they can pay, and they're paying a supervision fee for the people trying to get them to pay those other fees. Exactly. Okay. It creates a huge conflict of interest. Um, this supposedly neutral probation officer, or what we think of in other contexts as a an officer of the court, perhaps, is a financially motivated actor. They are a company set up to make profits from this model, uh, and 
many of our clients don't have much above the supervision fee or don't even have enough for the supervision fee every month. Oftentimes it's $40 per month. I've seen instances where it's $50 or $60 per month. Um, in some places, when they pay that fee, all of that money goes directly to the private company and none of the money is going to the court. And also this private company has a say in a lot of decisions that affect this parishioner's liberty. They have a say in how often this person has to report. I'll, I'll tell you about Rodney in a second. Some of our clients, like Rodney, have been told, you have to come in every week or every two days when you don't have enough money to pay us um, so that we can continue to demand that you pay or that when you don't show up, we can bring you to court and say that you're violating your probation to have another tool to use against you. These probation companies have a say in when you go back to court sometimes. Uh, so they can set a hearing for you and say, well, well, we'll get rid of that hearing if you pay us a certain amount of money. And they have a huge say in what happens to you when you're in court. The judge looks to the probation officer for testimony about how you're complying with your conditions of probation. Um, and often uh, there's incentive to both say that the person is not complying so that they get some sort of punishment, um, but also to get that person back on probation so that they continue to extract those fees and, and have that um, threat of punishment hanging over that person uh, in, in an even more real way. So why don't you tell me about Rodney? Sure. Rodney initially had a ticket for driving without insurance. And the court sentenced him to about to pay about six hundred and fifty dollars total between the the court costs and the fine. He couldn't pay it up front, so he was told to go talk to somebody. Again, another back room of the courtroom or a hallway. Um, and this person turned out to be his probation officer. He was told that he needed to report to them within the next week that he needed to bring his first payment and that he would need to pay the probation officer forty dollars per month because he was now on, on probation. Well, Rodney had had a felony conviction many years ago. He turned his life around. He had actually been uh, gotten a pardon for that conviction, and he thought, wow, probation? Why am I on probation for a traffic ticket? You know, I've been on probation before, but this seems like something completely different. And he soon realized this was a private company. It was not an officer of the court. Um, they handed him a sheet that says, do not contact the municipal court. They will be unable to help you. Each time that he told them that he couldn't afford to pay, they didn't offer him any ability to, you know, waive their fees or get a lower payment amount. They simply set him for another date within two days or a week to come back. Um, he was working a full-time job. He was supporting his wife and his kids, and it was hard for him to take time off of work, drive over to the probation office every week, uh, and try and pay them or convince them to give him more time. He ended up then with another case that he had to report to probation. He received, um, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to me, but it seems to happen a lot in Alabama. People send you checks in the mail um, and say that this is a check and you can deposit it. Well, really, it's a fake check or um, some sort of scam to try and get you a, a high-interest loan. Well, he took his check to a check-cashing place because he thought that this was something that would help him pay off his probation, honestly, and he ended up then getting a letter in the mail saying that he owed $900 for, for cashing a fake check and he could avoid prosecution by paying uh, an extra $130 fee plus the amount that he cashed the check for. What is the fee ostensibly for? Uh, it's, a <laughs> it's a fee for deferring prosecution in, check, uh, in 
these sorts of check, uh, worthless check cases. I'm not entirely sure, but they told yeah. him he could avoid prosecution by payment of this fee. Um, he went to the court, and without seeing a judge, they said, sure, you know, you can you can pay this $900 plus the... They being the district attorney's office? Uh, the court clerk, I think, actually. Okay. Um, you can pay the... $900 plus $130. And if you don't have that money, you can report to JCS, the private probation company. So he not only owed that money, but he again had to start paying the $40 uh, supervision fees per month. So just to get this straight, in essence, he never has any kind of hearing or adjudication as to whether or not he filed the false check. What happened was he basically bypassed all of that and went straight on to probation. And... That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Did, it, he, did he have to plead somewhere in there? Did he have to plead guilty? No, he did not. Um, this is set up as a way to... They, they said they were offering him a service that he could repay this amount in installments, but it was also accompanied by a probation order somehow. Interesting, because I guess they had not ever prosecuted him. It was a fee for deferring prosecution. Interesting. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I had to wrap my head well, around that. It, it highlights how this is, you know, this is called probation because that's how it looks legitimate or how, how these companies market themselves as a legitimate court operation, but it's really just um, funneling cases where any debt needs to be collected. So how did this happen? Presumably this is a function that used to be served by the government. Um, so how did this become a private function? And what incentive do the courts have to outsource this to private companies? I think historically, most of these courts that were utilizing or are utilizing private probation didn't have um, a separate probation entity, uh, at least in Alabama. This was mostly and has been replaced by court clerks just collecting money, because really that's the only function that these officers are serving. But uh, back Many years ago, maybe early 2000s, um, late 1990s in some cases, companies started coming to these municipalities and saying, we have a great deal for you. Um, with no money from you, no money from taxpayers, we, pro we will provide this free service. We will collect all of your money for you. I know you have probably lots of court debt that you haven't collected in the past. We can fix that problem for you. We can collect all of the money that's outstanding. And all it requires is for you to sign this contract here that lets us collect that money from individual people on probation. So we'll add our $40 fee and we'll collect it from them. But you don't need to worry about that. You won't be on the hook. You, city, won't be on the hook um, for any of that money. So it was kind of a win-win for a lot of cities. And it wasn't until people like our clients started coming forward to talk about the abuses that were happening under the system that cities really started to see what the true cost was. And the true cost was both the money that these these people on probation were paying, but also just the severe loss of liberty that was resulting, the reporting every week, um, the, uh, the fear that they were going to go back to jail for not paying, um, the fact that, you know, there was no way to there was no practical way for people to waive the fees or get a lower payment amount because uh, every time they asked their probation officer, they were told this wasn't an option. And so uh, just going back to your point about them, they can go back to jail if they ultimately aren't able to pay their fines. Yes, they can. And I'm not sure that 
we've necessarily done justice to the circumstances of folks who are facing these practices. Can you just talk about, you know, sort of what their lives, what some of your clients' lives have looked like, maybe specific clients, um, and, and what it means to be sort of on the edge of going to jail like this, or what it means to have to pay $40 a week? Because for some people listening, $40, $40 a month, excuse me, may not seem like a lot of money, but it sounds like for your clients, it's the difference between sort of freedom and, 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 and being incarcerated. It is. A lot of our clients have no additional money in their budgets to spend on any um, out-of-the-ordinary expenses that arise or even on some of their ordinary expenses. Um, they often work minimum wage jobs or maybe even work under the table. Minimum wage in Alabama is seven twenty-five. They often don't have full-time jobs, but they have such a regular schedule sometimes or just the, the way that their, their lives are set up, they can't take on a, a second job. It's just not possible either with child care or um, with the way their schedules are set just the week before. So, for instance, Amanda, who we were talking about, when we met her, she was working at, at Little Caesars, working the drive through at Little Caesars Pizza Place. She would, because she didn't have transportation, she walked two hours to work and two hours home combine that with her schedule uh, and there's there's just no extra time left in the day and there's no extra money left rent is uh, rent is a necessity obviously food in many instances our clients have other court financial obligations child support um, other things they have to pay uh, electricity water all of these things are separate in Alabama and separately itemized trash it's also a misdemeanor to fail to pay your trash bill we've had clients go to jail for not paying their trash bills just everything adds up and when you look at our clients finances when we ask them to write it down there's not enough money to cover all the bills that they're paying every month already and you mentioned you've mentioned a couple things that I'm surprised by that you could end up in jail for so failing to pay your trash collection fee or I think you know, traffic infractions. What are some of those unexpected things that seem pretty civil to me that could convert into a criminal um, or, a, or a situation where you would lose your liberty? And, and how does that work? Uh, so I'll start with the trash example. Um, we've had clients who were criminally prosecuted for failure to pay a trash bill under a part of the code in Alabama that uh, makes it a misdemeanor for failure to participate in the solid waste program. So what happens is the solid waste entity will give prosecutors a list of people who are overdue on their trash bills, and those people then face criminal charges. Some are even arrested. And we had a client who spent days in jail because he couldn't make bail on his case that was ultimately about his failure to pay his trash bill, kind of showing how all of these things intersect. Then he was left with a $500 or so cost bill in the end, uh, even though they dismissed the charges. He was told to pay restitution, his 80-something dollar trash bill, plus uh, multiple hundred dollars in court costs. Okay, and then if he didn't pay those fees or court costs plus the bill, he would be found in criminal contempt so he could go to jail again. Yes. Similarly, we've seen cities who make it a crime to not have running water in your house or have um, 
plumbing. Seems like something we want to promote. Obviously, we want people to have safe living conditions, but what was happening um, in Chickasaw, Alabama, was that our client, Sonia, found herself unable to pay... uh, unable to pay her trash bill. The trash company told the city who provided her water. They shut off her water, and then they charged her with a crime for failure to have water in her house. Um, So some of our clients face these situations where they are found to be participating in criminal activity based on things that they cannot control or things that the city is... like a status crime. Right. Advocates from our office worked with Sonia to asked the city to change this ordinance, and they agreed to do so, so it's no longer on the books in Chickasaw, uh, though we do worry that this kind of thing is happening elsewhere and is a huge problem. Um, Aside from all the issues we've already talked about, about uh, what happens when you're convicted of a a crime like this and all the fines and fees that result, Sonia was put on private probation in order to pay off the fines and fees as a result of this crime. Just the idea that this is a crime at all, I think, is a problem with the Eighth Amendment. I mean, this is cruel and unusual punishment. This is not uh, criminal behavior. It's it's behavior you can't control and is punishing you solely based on, on your status, as you said, similar to some of the arguments people have made in cases involving homelessness and how many homeless people have no choice but to sleep outside. So criminalizing them for that sorts of sort of behavior is um, punishing people purely for status. What happened to Sonia under private probation? Uh, she, she tried to report to private probation. She tried to pay them as much as she could. She had a sick mother, and she also has health problems herself. Her mother ultimately uh, passed away uh, while she was trying to pay JCS, the private probation company. The private probation company left the state as a result of some of the advocacy that we and others were doing in other cities, but nobody told her or told her when to report, and she was ultimately arrested because of her failure to report back after the private probation company went away. She actually showed up in City Hall to get something notarized for a job application she was putting in and uh, found out at that moment there was a warrant out for her arrest and they arrested her on the spot. We got involved shortly after that um, when she contacted us and just uh, told us about her experience with the system and at every level from the charges through the end of this case was just completely unfair what they were doing to her, completely outside of the realm of acceptable punishments for not having water in her house. You mentioned a couple times judges' constitutional obligations, and we've touched on this throughout, but I just want to be very clear because I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around how this is legal, right? Like, we abolished debtors' prisons in the 1800s. (laughs) Um, What are those constitutional obligations? Judges have a constitutional obligation um, to, well, to respect due process and equal protection. In the context of fines and fees, that means that they must inquire into a person's ability to pay before punishing them for non-payment. And that's a Supreme Court case, am I right? There was a case um, in the 80s, Bearden versus Georgia, uh, that explained pretty clearly. It was drawing from a line of cases that had had similar outcomes and similar facts. But in Bearden... Um, The issue was there was somebody on probation, and the state was attempting to revoke his probation solely for non-payment and said that it did not matter whether or not he could pay it. He needed to be 
punished for the crime he committed, and if he wasn't going to pay the money, then they had to put him in jail. The Supreme Court said that is unconstitutional. You must inquire into the person's ability to pay before making a determination of what the appropriate punishment is for non-payment. And if a person is unable to pay due to no fault of their own, you cannot put them in jail for that. Before we leave this subject, is there anything I didn't ask you about or anyone whose story you think really exemplifies um, these problems that you want to share? Yeah, we could go back to bail uh, for, an, for a minute, if that's okay. Sure. One of the problems that we've seen as we're looking into the bail context is how these bail companies are exploiting poor communities and communities of color. So um, many times people are, are desperate to get their loved ones out of jail. They will do almost anything to try and get them out of this place that is so damaging to people's mental health and so damaging to their stability and ability to you know, keep working, to prepare a defense for their trial, to keep them from accepting a plea bargain just to get out. So many people turn to bail bond companies to, to, to get bond. We represent three people, uh, Ronald and his mother, Samantha, and his close friend, Tiffany. Tiffany and Samantha were trying to get Ronald out of jail when he was arrested. They went to a bail bond company. The bail bond company said, bring us about $700 um, and we'll talk. They did that. The bail company accepted that money and said, actually, we need, we need a little more. And you're going to have to wait until we, we try and get the judge to lower the bond amount a little bit. So they did that. They waited a few more weeks. The bail company then said, okay, you owe us a couple thousand more dollars. You also need to pay on some old cases that Ronald has. And uh, we're going to put an ankle monitor on him uh, and have him pay an extra $10 per day for that ankle monitor. Per day. Wow. That's the highest I've heard. Yeah. This ankle monitor wasn't ordered by a court. It was imposed solely by the bail company in, in an effort to collect money that he owed since he couldn't post the full non-refundable fee up front. Um, over the course of the year or so that he was out on this bond, he was picked up by the bail company three times. They uh, picked him up at his work, threw him in, in the back of their car and brought him to their office and said, we need you to bring, we need you to get the money here. So he called his mom told her that she had to bring hundreds of dollars in order to keep him out of jail. This happened multiple times until eventually they brought him to jail and told his family it was because he hadn't paid what he owed them. You know, historically, bounty hunters have had the ability to arrest people and bring them to court, though usually you think of this as a way to catch fleeing fugitives or things like that, people who are trying to um, avoid the court's jurisdiction. In this case, they were arresting him uh, and bringing him to their office and letting him avoid jail if he paid enough money to satisfy their demands. And it really shows the impact this has not only on people who are in the criminal justice system, but their family members, his mom, his, uh, his close friend Tiffany. They were paying hundreds of dollars to try and help him stay out of jail. Um, and the bail companies know, much like the private probation companies, people will do a lot to try and avoid their family members going to jail. Um, and their entire industry is set up to capitalize on this fear. So flipping things now, we've talked a lot about how the criminal justice system involves and traps and punishes people for being poor. 
But I wonder if we could talk about how the criminal justice system makes people poor. Because that also seems like an economic justice issue as well. And not just people, but I imagine communities. I, don't, I wonder if you've thought about that. Certainly. Um, I think you especially see it when we have these private uh, companies that are set up to profit off of people in the criminal justice system. This, you know, these $40 probation fees or these bail bond fees plus $10 per day of ankle monitoring fees that we've talked about. All of this is not required by any court and is draining, um, draining these communities of, of any wealth that they have accumulated or try to accumulate. It's taking away from their ability to pay their rent or their power bills or um, provide food for their families. It is um, exploiting people because of their poverty in many instances. They're only in this situation because they couldn't pay the money up front. And you know, we talked about fines and costs as well. The amounts of money generally assessed uh, in many cases in many states are not based on somebody's ability to pay. Uh, the costs especially, they're statutorily outlined. Um, you know, in a certain case, it, the statute says there's $500 in costs. Um, many courts expect that person to pay $500 in costs. They do not generally take into account somebody's ability to pay as we would think that they, they should. Um, there are many advocates to, for moving towards an ability to pay on the front end, something like you might have heard about in other countries, like a day fine model, where your um, fine is based on a certain multiplier of your daily income, things like that. Um, there, was a, there was an article explaining this in some one of the Nordic countries about how somebody paid a, uh, a multimillionaire paid a, a many thousand dollars in a traffic ticket fine, um, things like that, you know, that show really what that example seems extreme, right? Like maybe we don't think somebody should pay $10,000 for a traffic ticket, but that's essentially what we're asking of poor people and people who don't have a great deal of income when we're not asking them to pay a $500 traffic ticket. I think that's a, a great place to stop. So Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. Thank you to Brooke Hopkins and Anna Wyke at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, as always, for helping to put this podcast together. Thank you to the people at Poddington Bear for uh, composing our theme music, and thank you to you for listening. This is just a reminder that the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and Sarah's and do not reflect the opinions of the Criminal Justice Policy Program, Harvard Law School, or Harvard University.